Second Kings chapter five, and we'll uh, we'll start reading in verse number one this morning. Second Kings chapter five, verse one. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So it was, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariots, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go, and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious, and went away, and said, Indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and will call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more than when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times into Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman said then, If not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Yet, in this thing may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the temple of Remen to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Remen, When I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Then he said to him, go in peace. Father God, I pray that you'll help now as we look at your word, that you'll fill me with your spirit to teach, that you'll fill us all with your spirit to hear, that you'll guide us to know just exactly what it is you want us to know from this passage. If there are lost among us, I pray today they would hear the gospel through this and be saved. If there are believers among us who uh, have drifted or are uh, in some state they ought not be, I pray they would be convicted of that and turn their heart toward home. 
whatever it is that you'd have us to respond and however you'd have us to respond, I pray that we would do just that. Help me, Lord, to teach just as well as I can. Fill me with your spirit toward that end. Help me to say the things I ought to and not say the things I ought not. Give me boldness. Give me clarity. Give me accuracy, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to do two things this morning. It's briefly today. Huh? Am I off? This thing's been driving me crazy anyway. You know the reason I'm off? Because it's turned off. I don't know. Is anybody getting nervous about the mental state of your pastor yet? But thank you, Brother Tim, for that. That was proactive and, and really good sound man stuff back there. It was a test. Oh, my goodness. Two things I want to do this morning. I want to, first of all, examine the story of Naaman, and then I want to make application to our lives. Very simple way that I want to look at this today. So let's, first of all, look at the story that we just read, the story of Naaman. We're introduced here to this fellow named Naaman in verse number one. In Syria, he was a great man. He was a commander of its army, and he was a favorite of its king. He was responsible for great victories. He was a powerful man. But he was powerless over one glaring issue in his life, wasn't he? And that was leprosy. He was a leper. He suffered from that same loathsome disease that's mentioned so often in Scripture. In Israel, leprosy was considered such a terrible thing that its sufferers were completely excluded from society. They were forced to live apart from all others. They were even forced to to proclaim aloud if someone came anywhere near them, unclean, unclean. And uh, that was the way leprosy was in Israel. It apparently was not that way, uh, at least the cultural implications were not as severe in Syria because Naaman apparently lived and served and continued to serve with his king. He talks about the king leaning on his arm as he worships in the temple of Rimen. And so apparently those kind of cultural separation things that occurred in Israel weren't true in Syria. But every other aspect of the horror of leprosy, he was experiencing. We're also introduced here to Naaman's little servant girl in verse number two. She had been captured and enslaved by the Syrians during some military incursion into Israel, and she served now in Naaman's house. She'd been separated from her family, her loved ones, her culture. Who knows for how long, and yet in spite of her state, in spite of her forced situation, in spite of her servitude, in spite of her lowly place in a strange and foreign society, she had become a trusted and loyal part of this household. She learned to love those she served, which is an interesting thing. And they came to respect and trust her as well. When she spoke, they listened to what she had to say. We're also introduced here, not for the first time, to Jehoram, the king of Israel, in verse number 6. Jehoram was an evil king, following in the footsteps of all of the kings of the northern kingdom. I read one time where when uh, Solomon's son Rehoboam took the throne and foolishly caused the kingdom to be split, the ten northern tribes went following Jeroboam and the two southern tribes followed him. From that time on, there was a succession of kings in the northern kingdom of Israel, all of them bad. And from that time on, there was a succession of kings in the southern tribes of Judah, most of them good. Well, Jehoram, Israel, bad. He was not a good king. 
at all. Elisha the prophet had a terribly low view of Jehoram and his wickedness earlier. If you go back two chapters to to chapter 3, and you can do this on your own, but if you go back there and you read, you'll find that there was a time when he teamed up with Jehoshaphat, who was the king of the southern kingdom, uh, to go against their common enemy, Moab. And they sought advice from several different prophets. One of them was Elisha. And when Elisha came before them and saw that Jehoram was sitting there, he said this, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, surely, were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. He didn't think much of Jehoram, did he? He wasn't willing to even give you the time of day. But that was Jehoram. We're reduced here also to, or introduced here also to uh, Elisha. And again, not for the first time. He was a prophet of God. He had figured prominently in the history of Israel up until this point. It's not the first time we've seen him. He had been with the great prophet Elijah. He had been his disciple. And when Elijah was taken to heaven in a whirlwind, his mantle fell on Elisha and went on to serve in his place. He was known for healings. He was known for miracles. One would think that Jehoram would have immediately sent for him when this request came for healing of Naaman. Because you would think he would have thought, if there's anybody there who could do this, it would be Elisha. Finally, we're introduced to another group of people in verse number 13, and that's others of the servants of Naaman. Again, nameless. Perhaps the little servant girl mentioned earlier was one of them, but I don't think so. She was actually a servant of Naaman's wife. She was a household servant. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense that she would have accompanied him on this trip. And so it seems likely that these were other servants. And that they, just like her, had some affection and concern for their master. Even calling him father. And he, just as with the servant girl, was perfectly willing to listen to his servants. Not dismissing their opinions and their thoughts as being beneath his dignity. But thinking that they were worthy of consideration. And so because of that, they played a vital role now in his healing. So there's the cast of characters in this story. So let's consider what happened with these people. Naaman, this mighty, successful, powerful man, had everything the world could possibly offer. But none of his successes and none of his prestige and none of his power could solve the one central problem in his life, and that was leprosy. Naaman was a leper. Leprosy in the Bible is an interesting thing. It is almost always, perhaps always, a picture of sin in our lives. Warren Wearsby, in his, uh, one of his commentaries, suggests several ways in which leprosy is illustrative of sin. Let me share some of that. He says, leprosy, for example, is a skin disease. Or perhaps it's a name given to several different skin conditions in the Bible, but it's more than skin deep. And so too is sin. How like sin? The problem is not on the surface, deeper than the skin. The problem lies in sinful human nature. The Bible has nothing good to say about the flesh, the old nature, because our sinful nature is the source of so many of our troubles. Sinners cannot be changed by shallow surface remedies. They need to have their hearts changed. So it's like sin in that just as sin is more than skin deep, so too is leprosy. He goes on, leprosy spreads, so too does sin. Leprosy was not an isolated sore on one part of the body. It had a way of spreading and defiling the whole body. 
Sin also spreads. It begins with a thought, then follows a desire, then an act, then the terrible results. Just read 2 Samuel chapter 11 and see how it's spread in the life of David. Leprosy defiles as to does sin. This means, of course, ceremonial defilement. Lepers were not allowed to participate in the religious services. They were forced to mark themselves as lepers and to cry unclean, unclean, to warn the people around them. Anyone who touched a leper was also defiled. And this is the tragedy of sin. It defiles the mind, the heart, the body, all that it touches. One sinner can defile a whole household. Think of Achan in Joshua chapter 7. No person was ever made cleaner because of sin, for sin is the great defiler of mankind. Leprosy isolated the leper from the people, just as sin isolates as well. Sin always isolates people. It takes them away from family, friends, and ultimately from God. And finally, leprosy destined things for fire. And so too too does sin. Any garment that was found defiled with leprosy was burned. There is only one place for sin, and that is in the fires of judgment. Jesus described hell as a place where the fire never Burns out in Mark chapter 9, and we just talked about that a week or so ago. Naaman was a leper. And nothing and nobody in Syria could help him. Until, that is, his servant girl made mention of a man in Israel that she knew could heal him. Verse number 3. What a reminder this nameless servant girl is to us. Think about her. Of all the people that no doubt surrounded this man. Of all the experts he had at his disposal. Of all the advisors upon whom he could draw at will. Who would have considered her opinion to be even remotely relevant? Who would have thought that hers would be a voice worth hearing? But she had the truth. She had the truth. And she was willing to share it. And had she not done that, Naaman would have no doubt died a leper. We can learn from this nameless servant girl. Anybody can be a witness. Anybody can share the truth. If you have it, you can share it. I mean, think about it. In this case, she didn't even speak directly with Naaman. She spoke with his wife, and it filtered up through the grapevine to Naaman. And the result was one less hopeless leper. Naaman took the idea to his king, who wrote a letter to Elisha's king, who had no idea what to do with it and took it entirely the wrong way. Jehoram was at enmity with the king of Syria. His people were enslaved by the king of Syria, just as this young woman is an example of it. And so he assumed there was some treachery afoot. He assumed there was something, some evil intent in the king of Syria's letter. And so frightened and distressed, he tore his clothes, which seems to be a meaningless detail in the story, doesn't it? He tore his clothes, and he commanded his advisors to try and figure out what manner of subterfuge the king of Syria was putting forth. But his response was what caught the attention of Elisha. His tearing of his clothes caught the attention of Elisha. God used a seemingly insignificant thing to put the people that needed to be together together so that Naaman could be healed. Elisha sent for Naaman, who came immediately with great pomp in verse number 9, expecting a miraculous event to take place. He came to Elisha's door in such an array of power and prestige. If he had come today, if this had been in our day today, he would have showed up with a cavalcade of limousines. 
he would have been accompanied by all sorts of uh, sycophants and, and, uh, and servants and surrounded by paparazzi. He comes in that state and he knocks on the door. A servant opened the door and looked him in the eye and said, Elisha's not coming to see you today. He sent a message. Go wash in the Jordan seven times. And then to his astonishment, the door closed in his face. He was enraged. Can you just imagine him? What? What in the world? Does he not know who I am? I am Naaman. I am one of the most important people in all of Syria. And he started to turn around and walk away in a rage. Elisha had treated him absolutely no different than anybody else. And I think that's part of the point of the whole passage, isn't it? No matter how big we are in our own eyes, we're all equal before God. No matter how special we might think we are, we have to humble ourselves and kneel at the foot of the cross just like anybody else if we want to obtain salvation. The first step in anybody being saved is confession of our sin and repentance. You can't do that from a heart of pride. It requires humility. Whatever your preconceptions are about reaching God, you have to leave them at the foot of the cross. And Naaman had to do the same thing. He had this picture in his mind of what the healing was going to be like. I don't know exactly what he was thinking, but he had some idea that there was going to be some pomp. There was going to be something that would take place, some miraculous display of power. And when it didn't turn out that way, he balked. And he almost turned around and went home still a leper. Until some more people, more servants, more people you wouldn't expect to play a role encouraged him to at least consider what the prophet had said. If he had suggested something difficult, you would have done it. Why not when he says something so simple as wash and be clean? As I think about these nameless servants, I'm reminded of another truth that Paul taught. Paul taught the truth that uh, one person plants and another waters and God gives the increase. And think about this. The little servant girl had planted a seed. These other servants tossed a little water on it and God gave the increase. Naaman listened. He took their advice. He obeyed Elisha's command. He washed in the Jordan, and he was wonderfully and totally healed. And he knew that this healing was from God. If you look at verse number 15, he didn't believe Elisha had healed him. He, read, he believed God had, and he was a changed man. He was different now. And we see that in his immediate desire to give to the work of God and worship the one true God exclusively from now on. We see that in verses 15 through 17. And, of course, that's another wonderful picture of salvation uh, as taught throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament. It's a, it's a wonderful picture of being born again. We're made new when we trust Christ. Paul said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So he was changed. But there was just this one little kink in things. Did you notice this little kink? One little problem. It's in the very last verse that we read. He was powerful in Syria, but there was one who was more powerful than him, and that was his king. And he knew that his pagan king was going to require that he continue to accompany him into the temple of the false god Rimmon, where the king would then kneel and worship, and he would be expected to accompany him in there. And so he asked Elisha forbearance about this, as he knew he would have no choice. And I think Elisha's response is one of the most interesting parts of the whole thing. He said, go in peace. Go in peace. Well, that's the story. 
So let's make some application from it to our lives, God. I think there's many that we could make, but there's three specific applications that I want to narrow it down to because I think they're the main thoughts. The first one is obvious. Salvation really is as simple as wash and be clean. It really is. Wash and be clean. We are saved by faith in the finished work of and person of Jesus Christ alone. We are washed in his blood, as the song says. The waters of baptism wherein we subsequently are washed by water are but a picture of that. We are saved by grace through faith. And not of yourselves, Paul said to the Ephesians, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so we need to ask the question, have you been washed? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Because so many people make the mistake that Naaman made, which is to think that's too simple. To think that's too easy and to walk away. And oh, I would plead with you this morning, don't ignore and reject the simplicity of the gospel. It is truly that easy. Wash and be saved. And I use the word easy Probably I shouldn't use that word because it sure wasn't easy for Jesus Christ who paid the price to make it possible. Hear the words of Naaman's servants and take hold of the simple truth of the gospel. Wash and be clean. Believe and be saved. That's one application. Second application I see is this. Salvation really does change a person. Inside and out. So clear is this thought in Scripture. That if we see somebody who professes to be a Christian and they simply show no evidence of it in their life, we have no choice but to really treat them, the Bible says, as an unsaved person. In other words, keep preaching the gospel to them because they must not have got it the first time around. And so they, they need to be changed. The psalmist says because they do not change, therefore they do not fear God. And so here's the application, the question for us then from that has your life changed since you met the Lord Jesus Christ. What's different now? If nothing is different, then you have some questions to ask yourself. Because the Bible clearly says it ought to be different. I think there's only two possibilities. If you can look at your life and say, there was a time in my life when I trusted Jesus Christ and my Savior, but, as my Savior, but there is absolutely no change. I live the same way now. I do nothing different. I feel nothing different. I think nothing different. I read nothing different. If that's your case, I think one of two things is true. Either, number one, you're not saved. You didn't get it. And you need to trust Christ. Or you're backslid. And you need to repent. Something is wrong. Because the application we see here is that salvation really does change a person inside and out. But finally, number three, and this is the one I want to spend a little bit more time on this morning. Sometimes, circumstances get in the way. Just as the requirement that was true in Naaman's life. He had to obey his king, and it was in the way. Sometimes. This past Wednesday, while some of our brothers and sisters were here praying during prayer meeting, Kathy and I drove to Ashtabula. And we drove up there to pray with the Zancheski family. We've talked about them a little bit. Many of you remember them, I'm sure. Deanna Zancheski and her kids attended here for uh, a while, some years back. And the family has been much in the news lately as their youngest daughter, Kara, was recently brutally murdered. She was eight when we knew her, 13 when she lost her life. At first, the mother was somewhat implicated in this. Deanna was somewhat implicated in this. The media implied she and her husband had willingly turned Kara over to the man who took her and 
People were believing that she had done that on purpose, but details eventually came to light that that was not the case. The police plainly said that that was not the case. There were other things at play, like drugs and kidnapping and terrible things, and it seemed like she was murdered because of a drug debt owed by her father. I heard of this initially when the superintendent of the Ashtabula Schools called me. I was at Kathy's daughter's wedding, and uh, my phone rang, and here was this Melissa, who's the superintendent there. She informed me she was speaking with Deanna, and she had, Melissa's a believer, and she had asked Deanna, do you have a church? Do you have anybody that you can talk to? And she said, the last church I have ever attended was here. So she gave her my name. And so the superintendent said, will you call her? Will you talk to her? And so I did. And I prayed with her. She was devastated, of course, as you can well imagine. And then I was informed this past past Monday that the tragedy was not over. For Deanna, in her grief, took her own life. I know this is not news to most of you. I know it's been mentioned throughout the unfolding of these events. I know that many of you read it on the news. But I want you to consider for a moment the situation last Wednesday. As I stood there. Amongst that grieving group of people. It's quite a crowd there. At Deanna's funeral. I was expected to say something of comfort and help to a family where a little daughter had been murdered and then just a couple of days later the mother had hung herself. What do you say? It'll be better soon. What do you say? Tomorrow's another day. What do you say? Cheer up. There's better days ahead. Here's what I said. I told the family a story. I told them of a day when Deanna had walked down this island, this church, and stepped into the waters of baptism and was baptized, calling upon the name of the Lord. I told them of an even earlier day when I had stood and sat in her living room with her and some of her kids, sharing the gospel with them. All of sin to come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, I shared the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Actually, God commends his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us in our place as our substitute. And now whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Deanna, do you believe that? She said, yes, I do. Yes, I do. I do believe. Now, I don't know very much, I know nothing, of what happened with this woman after she left the watch care of this church. I do not know how trapped she was by circumstances beyond her control. But I know this. If we really believe that salvation is as simple as wash and be clean, then we must also believe that no matter what happens thereafter, once washed, we are clean. I've preached and believed in eternal security from the time I took this pulpit and long before that. Once saved, always saved. My my entire ministry, I have believed that. I believe that from the top of my head to the sole of my foot. I believe it's what the Bible teaches. So if she truly believed, of course we don't know that, but if 
she truly believed, if she truly professed Jesus as her Savior, then nothing that happened after that could change her. That's what I told her. You see, both Naaman's case and Deanna's case remind me that we don't know the circumstances people are dealing with. We need to be careful. An awful lot of judgment went forth on social media over this family. Some of us need to turn off our Facebook accounts if we can't control ourselves and say things we ought to say. The police actually came out and said they thought it was very possible that she took her life because of the things that were said on Facebook. God help us if Christians are involved in that. We just don't know what people are going through. We need to be careful. You know, there are women who are married to men who don't allow them to serve Christ as they would. There are children who live in homes where their parents will not allow them to serve Christ as they would. Around the world, there are people by the multiplied thousands who must serve in secret because of the realities of their culture. I think we need to remember Elisha's words to such. Elisha didn't heap burdens on Naaman that he could not fulfill. He didn't make impossible demands of him. He recognized Naaman faced a circumstance that could not be changed. And so he told him, go in peace. So how do we sum up the story of Naaman? I think it's summed up in those two phrases. Wash and be clean, and then go in peace. Wash and be clean, and go in peace. Because once we are washed, we are forever washed. We are forever clean. And therefore we can have peace. Therefore, having been justified by faith, Paul said we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me ask three questions. Three questions to kind of help us examine our hearts. In light of this message, number one, have you been washed, my friend? Are you clean? Are you washed in the blood of a lamb? And number two, has your life changed as a result? If you claim to have been washed in the blood of the lamb. Some could take this sermon as an excuse to say, you know what, I have a reason why I can't serve the way I ought to. Some would say that they must bow down in the temple of Rimen, when in reality they're just simply backslidden. They're just simply disobedient. Maybe not even saved in the first place. You and you alone know whether that's true. You and you alone know whether or not it's an excuse in your life. If there are not circumstances that are completely out of your control, prohibiting it, then you need to examine your heart. And if you're not changed, you need to do business with God. And then finally, number three. Are you living in a situation where you simply cannot serve as you wish? There may be some. I doubt that's the case in here, but could be. There can't be any excuses there. Again, you know that that's really you. But if it is, then I believe Elisha's words are words to you as well. Be at peace. Serve God as much as you can. And be at peace.